Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. This week's top lines, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz see an improvement in their brand following the most recent Republican debate. But Ben Carson still leads the pack in the GOP primary. We'll take a look at some general election polling showing that the GOP candidate Clinton can Trump is Trump. But Carson winds up being the furthest ahead. We'll dig into what happened in Kentucky, where Republican Matt Bevin just won the gubernatorial race after polls leading up to Election Day showed margins in favor of his Democratic opponent. Um, And then Republicans, no fans of the media, uh, will take a look at data that shows uh, what people think about the concept of media bias. Then we'll talk to Neil Newhouse about Walmart moms and get his take on what's going on in the various primaries. And finally, we'll dig into some polling coming out of Pew about religion in America and also take a look at what people think about Christmas creep, the encroachment of the holiday season well in advance of Christmas itself. Right. So, and if you aren't already a subscriber, we we think this is a perfect time to just, uh, subscribe because we have a lot of cool stuff coming up. We have our interview today with Neil Newhouse. We're doing our first live show at Georgetown University next week, so we'll push uh, out clips from that in next week's show. And if you go to Georgetown, you should uh, make sure you attend the event. We have some other really awesome interviews on the books, which we can't say what they are, who they're with yet, but they are really rad. So you should... I feel like our show is really becoming big time now, Marjorie. I know it really is and if we've made it (laughs) i know i know because people you know people want to be on and people want to listen to it so definitely make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the hot polling action um but so the first piece as always is what's going on in 2016 and especially post the debate uh there was a republican cnbc debate last week which um you know i i was traveling and i wanted to make sure my entire schedule was built around setting up time to watch the debate and then i watched it and i thought this one is not quite as much fun as some of the other ones. And apparently I was not alone in that opinion. And, you know, you, particularly with some of the candidates on stage, I guess, shared that opinion. And what do you think, Chris? It was just nonetheless clear, I think, who the winners and losers were. Well, it was very clear in my mind that the, the CNBC moderators, when the headlines came out the next day and people said that they were kind of the losers, it was a very odd debate, um, you know. I don't even know that it's necessarily liberal media bias, but it was just weird kind of the way that the moderators 
wanted it to be more about them. So it, I didn't actually find it that interesting because I like it when candidates fight each other, when candidates debate right. against each other. And it like very quickly became the candidates versus the moderators, which just was not compelling television for me. Right. And if one person's going to attack the press, I mean, that that's, you know, I mean, Newt Gingrich had a surge last time around basically from attacking the moderators, even though he loves the press, actually. But he, you know, knew it would be fun to attack the moderators in the debate. And I think you saw a lot of folks getting swept up in that as opposed to making it really about economic policy, which ultimately, let's be honest, probably would not have made great ratings if it had just been about economic policy. So when it came to which candidates won or lost, as we talked about on last week's show, we didn't really have a lot of data at that point, but it seemed as though people really liked Marco Rubio. Frank Luntz had said that Ted Cruz's line about the debate moderators rated a 98 on his dial test scale, which was the highest he'd ever seen. Uh, And the polling that's come back since sort of confirms that that Rubio, Cruz, and Carson were the the winners or the beneficiaries of, of the news cycle following the debates. Um, Huffington Post YouGov asked their panel, um, did you did your opinion of various candidates improve or worsen um, as a result of the debate? For Marco Rubio, 49 percent of Republican primary voters said uh, that they had an improved opinion of him, only 4 percent worse. Ted Cruz improved his standing with 42 percent of voters. Ben Carson with 35 percent. Donald Trump, interestingly, with 30 percent, only 11 percent said that Trump's performance worsened their opinion. Right. So, I mean, that I guess what is what happens when he doesn't speak quite as much in the earlier debates. He, he you laid know, low. He won the top spot and the bottom spot. And here he didn't win either the top spot or the bottom spot. He, he was he was kind of the the fourth most interesting thing going on in the debate, <laughs> which is not normally the case with Trump. Um, but as we'll talk about in a little bit, does Trump being out of the headlines actually hurt him because he's no longer atop the polls nationwide? Right. And Chris Christie, you know, Chris Christie had a good moment, and he's actually done quite well in these debates. I mean, I guess his big moment was saying, "Hey, what, uh, why are we talking about fantasy football?" Which I guess is <laughs> that's that's what Margie wants to say to me a lot when I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I. I agree with that. <laughs> and I'm the Jeb Bush one that's like, no, but Margie, I want to talk about how I own Rob Gronkowski. He did so well last week. Right, and you're like, but, no, Kristen. But we have no, a podcast stop. and they're running for president. <laughs> that's the difference. <laughs> but somehow that makes Chris Christie like surge in the polls. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and then line. and then so John Kasich and Jeb Bush were the two that sort of had the, the worst outings, um, according to this Huffington Post YouGov poll. Um, only 9% of people said their opinion of John Kasich improved, while 27% said it got worse. And then poor Jeb Bush, 3% said their opinion of him got better, but 47% said their opinion of Jeb Bush got worse. And for Ouch. those of you who didn't see the debate, um, you may have seen in the headlines, there was this interaction between Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, where the Bush campaign ahead of the debate had telegraphed, we're going to hit Marco Rubio on his voting record in the Senate. And so, of course, like any intelligent person, Rubio was prepared to hit back. Um, Hey, boss, there's something on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Bush is going to hit you on your voting record. (laughs) Yeah. So he, you know, Rubio had clearly prepared a response. It came across very well. And Bush sort of seemed kind of stunned and didn't really have a great follow up. Why would you telegraph it? I guess I guess we don't know. That's really the mistake more than the actual thing itself. I, I think part of it, this is why I can't wait for the book to get written about this campaign afterwards, is to find out was this a strategic decision that the super PAC made and was kind of trying to telegraph to the campaign to say, hey, because they can't more communicate, right? right? And with the Bush team, there's $100 million in that super PAC. So getting the campaign and the super PAC on the same page, 
they're going to have to communicate and it's going to have to be publicly because otherwise you violate campaign finance law. So was this the campaign telegraphing it because they wanted the super PAC to know? Because then the super PAC launched at is Marco working on Twitter before the debate? Like, um, so was it sending a signal to the super PAC like, hey, this is going to be this. our message. Get your assets ready. Get your get your stuff ready. Is that what was happening? Mm-hmm. So that may be why it was telegraphed. But no, nonetheless, when you ask voters in this YouGov poll, who do you think won the debate? Um, Marco Rubio came out of that exchange looking pretty good. 33% say Marco Rubio won. 21% say Ted Cruz won. 17% say Donald Trump won. And 12% say Ben Carson won. And so Margie and I are both in this USA Today insiders poll. And um, this week, my quote uh, when I was filling out my poll wound, wound up being used in their article where I said, you know, I think Rubio Cruz and Christie did themselves favors, but it's unclear if the polls will move. Interestingly, the polls have moved. Um, if you take a look at, say, New Hampshire, WBUR, um, the change from September to November uh, shows that actually Donald Trump and Ben Carson's numbers in New Hampshire have fallen just a little bit, um, while Marco Rubio and Chris Christie have seen their numbers go up a lot. Marco Rubio has gone up nine points um, to 11 percent. He's sitting in third place in New Hampshire now. Uh, John Kasich is, is, remains in fourth at 10% in this WBUR poll. Chris Christie jumping from 2 to 8%. That's a pretty big leap. Yep. Um, and that the big people who have fallen, uh, again, Trump has fallen by four. Fiorina has fallen by five. You know, we've talked a couple of times about how the Fiorina bubble may have burst, and it doesn't seem that she did anything in that last debate to change that narrative. No. Um, so it, it, it certainly seems that, that you've, you've got data now really showing Rubio doing well in New Hampshire. Ted Cruz has never really been a New Hampshire kind of guy. Um, So it doesn't surprise me that Ted Cruz did not see a New Hampshire bump as a result of this. Uh, What do you think, Margie? Yeah, I mean, you know, Christie started off, I mean, there was a time when Christie was very popular and he was very strong. And then there was a long time where he was doing very badly. You know, he was very, he was net unfavorable. His favorables have improved really almost exclusively because of this these debates, um, he'll have one or two moments where he gets, you know, gets in someone's face, Jersey style, and you know, get get some points out of it. Um, I, I don't know whether it's going to be necessary, but not sufficient to really lift him up into the top tier. At you know, like with Fiorina, Fiorina has a boost from the debates. That's not enough to really keep her up there. And so the same may be true with Christie. We'll see. Um, Kasich, you know, had a strong first debate and hasn't really come up for air again after that. Um, while Rubio has this sort of slow and steady wins the race a perception that he is potentially coalescing the insider establishment group while still able to appeal to folks on the right. Remember, he was called a Tea Party candidate. But can he, you know, can he gain all the supporters of folks who were sitting on the sidelines or who were maybe supporting one of these other candidates who's, who's uh, flagging? We're going to talk a little bit when we talk to Neil Newhouse about uh, Jeb Bush and what we heard in the uh, with Republican primary moms in New Hampshire who are still considering a lot of candidates. So, you know, the thing to remember when you look at these numbers is, you know, you may have eight points here, seven points here. They're still thinking th- over, they're still considering three, four, five different candidates. Right. Um, and the the big thing to, however, the, the big news that has to be kind of depressing for the Bush camp. And by the way, on Tuesday, Tim Miller, the communications director for the campaign, tweeted out, 
we know the polls are going to be bad for us this week. We're <laughs> looking good. forward to pushing past them, but, you know, sort of expectation setting, right? And it that to me, that indicates that whatever they're seeing internally matches up with this Quinnipiac poll that just came out um, that shows Bush at 4% nationally. Um, Carson and Trump still in the lead, 24 for Trump, 23 for Carson, followed by Rubio and Cruz, who are essentially tied, Rubio 14, Cruz 13, and then everybody else. Bush is the next highest at 4%, and then everybody else is just 3, 2, and 1. So this race, it seems like it has now really evolved into Trump, Carson, Cruz, Rubio, kind of with Jeb Bush still hanging in there, but definitely falling way out of the out of the lead. And when I take a look at Quinnipiac, I, I love Quinnipiac, by the way. If anybody from Quinnipiac is listening, thank you for what you do, because you release crosstabs, and that makes True. me happy. Yes. Um, so you can take a look at the political ideology of who supports whom, and you see that Carson does well across political ideologies. There's not a big difference. It's 26% of moderate and liberal Republicans, 22% of somewhat conservatives, and 21% of very conservative. So he's not just a base guy. Trump, same way. Trump wins 21% of very conservatives, 31% of somewhat conservatives, and 22% of moderates and liberals. So he's not just confined to one ideological block. Rubio, 12% among very conservatives, 20% among somewhat, and 10% among moderate liberal. Um, And then you get to Cruz, and Cruz's support is very lopsided. His support, 26%. He wins among the very conservative, but he significantly trails among somewhat and moderate and liberal. And that'll be his challenge because as as we've talked about on the show before, it's the people who win the somewhat conservative bucket who wind up doing really well in the primaries. If you take a look in the say the South Carolina primary exit polls from 2012. It's going back in previous cycles. It's not the people who win the very conservative who win a state like South Carolina. It's the people who win the somewhat conservatives. And so Cruz trailing really badly among that group um, raises a lot of questions about how strong is he. If he's just winning the very conservative, depends on what the electorate of the, the, the makeup of the electorate really looks like right. for him. Yep. And, you know, the, uh, that's true for, for Cruz, right? But he still has enough juice and enough passion with folks to stay in the game for a bit longer. The other thing is we, we don't expect Cruz to really change what he's about. I mean, he's not like, I'm doing a reset. I'm, you know, I'm more modern. I mean, he's going to be this guy. And if that works or not, you know, is TBD. But he he's not going to really, you know, change his his path in a way by moderating himself or to sound more appealing to somewhat conservative folks or you know more moderate uh, Republicans. Um, while Carson, the thing about Carson, and you see this in the general election stuff, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, is that he is seen his favorables are so high they continue to grow he's you know even well received at times among democrats you know i've heard democrats in focus groups say you know i'm supporting sanders or i'm supporting supporting clinton but you know what i i'm i want to hear what carson has to say mm-hmm. because he puts this very gentle you know finish on this you know similar views to what other folks have on the stage but he just doesn't seem like he wants to kind of shout at the voter which some of the others sometimes do so that is what keeps him where he is and that is why he doesn't have this um you know modulated 
base of support where some groups are he's really high and some groups he's really low. He does well across a variety of groups because he is comes across as very likable and nice. He's also somebody who has almost no Republican voters saying that they have written him off. Um, so Quinnipiac also asked a question, are there any people running for president you would definitely not support? Um, Trump, a quarter of Republican voters say absolutely not. Uh, Jeb Bush, 23 percent of Republican voters say absolutely not. Um, you have Kasich, Pataki, Paul, Christie. They also have in double digits people saying, no, I'd never support him. Um, but Carson, only 3 percent of Republican primary voters say they would never support him. It's the lowest of any of the candidates. So yep. there isn't like an anti-Carson universe out there. And, you know, earlier, a few months ago, Bush, I mean, sorry, Trump was the really divisive candidate. You know, Trump had really high on faves. You had a lot of folks really, you know, a lot of Republicans in particular, unfavorable and unhappy with Trump. Now you see that with Bush. He's the, you know, number one in terms of candidate you would not support. Um, his unfaves are at times higher than Bush's and some, I mean, than Trump's in some of these polls. So, you know, uh, he, he's really, you know, there was a time when, Bush's last name was why he was at the top, and now his last name is really why we're still considering him as part, being part of the top tier because it's really almost not borne out by the numbers anymore. Well, and what surprised me a little bit, although I guess it shouldn't, is that in this Quinnipiac poll, in their um, general election matchups, they test Clinton against Carson, Clinton against Trump, Clinton against Rubio, Clinton against Cruz, and Clinton against Christie. But I don't think they've tested Clinton versus Bush. They tested five different matchups, and I couldn't find a Clinton versus Bush one in the crosstabs. Wow. So maybe I missed it, but in this printout that we've got here in our studio, they tested Clinton against five Republicans, and Bush wasn't one of them. Yeah, well, you know, it's tough to get all the matchups in there, I guess. So, But Christie instead of Bush, that, that, in, that intrigued me. Um, well, so let's let's move on. What's going on on the Democratic side? Well, the Democratic side, you know, as folks have seen, it's been a, a really strong couple of weeks for Hillary Clinton. She has surged in the polls. She surged in the polls nationally in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. She surged in some of the early primary states where you have Monmouth uh, showing her up in New Hampshire. Remember, New Hampshire has been Sanders' territory for a while. He's been up in a variety of polls for a while, but that's no longer seems to be true. Um, and she continues to be up in Iowa. So she, um, so, you know, this is on the heels of a strong debate performance a couple weeks ago, the Benghazi hearings where the NBC and Wall Street Journal poll shows that people have moved a little bit, not dramatically, but a little bit in terms of uh, how they feel about um, Clinton in terms of Benghazi, where, you know, it, it's almost been the, the opposite effect of what uh, perhaps the committee was hoping would happen in uh, earlier in October. Um, only 27% said that they were satisfied uh, from what they've heard about Clinton on Benghazi. That's now up to 30. That's not a lot of movement, but the percent that say they're not satisfied dropped from 44 to 38. But this is just in like two weeks. So, you know, this is a little bit of movement in the opposite direction of where the committee was headed. And I think, it, you know, again, it's not dr dramatic movement. I, part of it is probably because 
you know, people see these issues through the lens that they already have, right? And also you had people watching news reports more so than perhaps watching the 11 hours of <laughs> of the hearing. Um, and you had more people say uh, than in mid-October, uh, 36% said it was unfair and too partisan, the, the hearings. Now 40% say it was unfair and too partisan. So, you know, so it shows that there's just a little bit of movement in Clinton's favor and perhaps that little bit of movement was enough to uh, lift her somewhat in the polls in addition to everything that's been going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we'll take a look just at some general election matchups. So we have Quinnipiac and we have NBC Wall Street Journal. And they tell slightly different stories about who's actually ahead, but they tell the same sort of story about who is the strongest Republican to go up against Hillary Clinton in a general election. So NBC Wall Street Journal shows Clinton very far ahead of Donald Trump, ahead by eight points. Um, and this is similar in somewhat similar to Quinnipiac, which shows Trump as the worst performer against Clinton of their five options. He's down to Clinton um, 43 to her 46 in Quinnipiac. Um, NBC Wall Street Journal did test uh, Jeb Bush, and they found that Hillary Clinton leads Jeb Bush by four points, 47 to 43, and we don't have a Quinnipiac comparison. When it comes to Clinton versus Rubio, NBC Wall Street Journal shows Clinton with a three-point advantage over Rubio, 47 to 44. Um, But the the Quinnipiac poll tells sort of the opposite story. It actually shows Rubio up five over Clinton, 41 to 46. Um, Then we take a look at the matchup, Ben Carson. He is the one that always does the strongest against Hillary Clinton. In the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, he does the best and is tied with Clinton, 47-47. In Quinnipiac, Clinton is down 10 to Ben Carson, 40-50. to In fact, interestingly enough, actually, in the Quinnipiac poll, again, because they released crosstabs, which makes me happy, uh, it shows Carson beating um, Clinton by 20 points among men, but also winning 44-45, to or basically tied with women, which is very interesting. So... Um, not clear to me what makes the NBC results so different from the Quinnipiac results in terms of their sort of raw margins. The NBC one is much more favorable to Clinton overall, but both of these polls show Carson as the best Republican matched up against her. Right. And again, it goes back to that, you know, he's got high favorables. There are some independents and Democrats who, you know, are keeping their eye on him. Um you know, uh, while Carson has surged, he, you know, Clinton has surged also, but Clinton's still going to have that divisiveness among Republicans that Carson doesn't really have right now. And that may change because obviously we're going to, you know, if Carson's a nominee, then there's going to be plenty of discussion and dissection over everything he's ever said. We have that with Clinton. We have years of that with Clinton. We don't have that quite yet with Carson. So that's part of where we are just in the in the time frame of this all. Um, but it does, you know, it suggests that that for sure Carson is strong. He's strong in the primary. He's strong in the general. You know, he's been strong for months. He was strong even before he surged. And most political consultant type folks that I have talked to, and I count myself in this, just don't understand why. That they're, they watch Carson give a speech and they're like, he seems like a nice guy, but I just don't get it. I, like I've heard the phrase, I just don't get it. So many times. And it, I can't find a lot in polling yeah. to help me untangle it, except that people just 
like him. I think they just, you know, they see him as like a regular person and, you know, they're sick of politicians and he's a a regular person who's well-educated, professional and, you know, and and the, and they feel that that's what we need. I mean, I heard this at focus groups, and again, you know, Neil was there. We'll talk about this too. Where you know, folks say, well, I heard one person say, I, I, it's just too hard to know who to vote for unless you get to know them personally. And so, you know, I mean, this is because they're also an early primary voting state, so that's <laughs> they how they do get to they meet do, them. <laughs> they do get to know them personally. But you know, this sense that you really want to know them as a regular person. And someone would say, like, I want a regular person to run. And so, you know, and so Carson is a regular person while Trump, you know, people have said he, they, uh, you know, find him relatable, even though he's a millionaire, to paraphrase the uh, Frank Lund's focus groups uh, or and the Bloomberg focus groups. It's still nonetheless, um, you know, not the same as actual, as Carson, who really does seem like an everyman. So bef- before we move on, um, you know, we're going to have a little block here about uh, media bias that I-, I think I just want to hit really fast since we're talking 2016. So we've got another Republican debate that's coming up in, uh, I think, next week in Milwaukee, hosted by Fox Business. Uh, and as, as I mentioned before, you know, in the wake of the CNBC debate, the big story was, is there media bias? Um, you know, we'll talk to Neil about how Walmart moms have viewed the debates. Um, but trust in the mainstream media is very, very low. So Gallup has data where they've been asking this question, do you trust the mass media? And they've been asking it over the course of decades. And trust in mass media is is down. Only 40 percent of people in their most recent survey and from 2015 say that they trust the mass media a great deal or a fair amount. Um, that's down from 53 percent. Majorities of Americans who felt that they trusted the mass media up as recently as 20, uh, 2003. These numbers have been declining. Um, and it's actually younger people whose trust trust in mass media has declined the most. Only 36% of adults under the age of 50 say they trust the mass media. Um, And trust by party has also changed a lot, too. So Republicans have really never loved the mass media. Around the 2004 elections, you see the Republican trust in the media fall off big time. Um, But it stayed pretty stable at only, you know, 31, 32% since then. Meanwhile, for Democrats, trust in the mass media has dropped from 70 percent, it's high in 2005, down to 55 percent as of 2015. And then for independents, it's also fallen a lot from 49 percent in 2005 down to 33 percent today. Now, I wonder if this is one of those things where the phrase mass media sounds, you know, dated and it sounds so sweeping and broad. You know, I mean, I know they want to track it. Obviously, they've been testing this for decades, but there's something about the phrase is mass media, which I don't really hear. It's not as commonplace as it used right. to be. So I, I don't know. I don't know what. I mean, I'm sure if they called it mainstream media, that would also have bad, <laughs> even worse ratings. You know, the lamestream media, Margie. <laughs> You're calling it the wrong term. Yes, all, the lamestream. All, media. I guess those are those are probably. Also, not very good. Um, <laughs> also, have low ratings. <laughs> but last but not least, on this media bias thing, before we move on, um, is there is a, a a big big data can find media bias as well. And this is not a, a study that was done to f- sort of root out left right media bias, but rather to figure out um, what types of words do journalists use when they write about controversial versus non controversial topics, um, and do they use words that are 
uh, considered to be more emotionally loaded. Um, and so these researchers uh, from the Cutter Computing Research Institute, University of Maryland, and MIT, they sought out a data-driven approach to understand how controversy interplays with emotional expression and biased language in the news. Um, and so they focused on 15 major U.S. news outlets comparing 21 million articles. Um, and they found that controversial articles used fewer positive words, more negative words, um, and more highly emotional terms um, or highly emotional terms were actually less likely to be found in articles on controversial topics, a sign that authors were maybe trying not to sound biased. So they used less emotional words but more negative words. I wonder how they determined that that concept. How I don't they, know. They root that out. I don't know, but some of these words that are considered strongly controversial. I mean, there's they, they poll, politics, marriage, legislation, leadership. I mean, these are things that are in. These are strong words that are in strongly controversial articles, which I find Pull. pretty. I know. Is that really a controversial word? I are guess we a so. controversial show, Margie? Well, I guess so. Well, I, I mean, I guess we're going to talk about that when it comes to Kentucky now, where there is, you know, poll controversy. But I guess it's a. I mean, I guess the poll is always about a controversial topic, typically. And also, I mean, is the use of emotional words necessarily biased? I mean, what if you're just quoting people in the story, or wouldn't you necessarily have? Em- more emotional words in a more controversial like this is this study is is interesting to me because it was it was pushed around yesterday as like big data finds media bias and so well you know i mean i think part of it is just the you know the stuff that's in the controversial articles or the words that are in a controversial story are about you know the things that we all have a debate about republicans restrictions rule ruling elections health guns israel iran investigators right the non controversial words mother <laughs> middle hundreds husband ice illinois i mean they're just more ice. like today that's pretty you know, controversial right <laughs> right today you know club cloudy so you know it's just like today it's going to be icy in illinois and you know call your mom like those are you know that's less <laughs> controversial than there's today there's going to be an election and the polls show that people want new leadership that's going to be a little bit more controversial Well, let's talk a little bit about polling controversy then. We'll use some emotionally loaded language in this this next segment. So Kentucky uh, had Election Day on Tuesday, as did many states um, across the country. But in Kentucky, uh, you had a very big difference between the results that showed up at the uh, ballot box and what the polls had predicted. So Kentucky is one of those states that elects their governor in sort of unusual year elections. And the polling leading up to Election Day showed a fairly stable race. There, there weren't a ton of polls conducted, um, but the ones that were conducted showed that Democratic candidate Jack Conway was um, ahead. The final Huffington Post polling average showed him up 43 percent to Republican candidate Matt Bevins, 40.9 percent, with independent candidate Drew Curtis at 6.9 percent. Um, and on the uh, on Election Day, that was not the result. Um, Matt Bevin, in fact, won by nine points. So instead of losing by two, he won by nine. So people are going, well, what the heck happened? This is yet another big polling miss. Um, try to help us understand it. So I took a look at some of the most recent polls that came out prior to Election Day. And again, there weren't a ton of public polls. So you always have to build in the fact that 
a poll conducted three weeks ago maybe just didn't pick up late movement. You know, you can't rule that out. Right. But some of these polls were conducted pretty close to Election Day and still missed pretty significantly. And I saw people saying on Twitter that even Bevin's own internal poll showed it tight or with uh, Conway up. So it wasn't like this was just a, you know, Democrats release Democratic poll. I mean, this was a, a consistent trend toward tight, lean Bevin. I right. mean, tight, lean Conway. So there are, there are three polls that came out fairly recently. One was Survey USA conducting research for a handful of media outlets. Their most recent poll showed Conway up five. And their methodology was to do a blend of um, sort of robocalls to random random numbers um, as well as a web survey. Um, 50, or 72% of their interviews were done through IVR technology. That's the sort of robo-poll technology. And 28% were done over the web. They don't specify how they decide who a likely voter is. And right. because they're doing this, they say, through random digit dialing, it means they're not doing it off of voter lists. They're just doing it, you know, you report if you're a registered voter, and then you report if you think you're likely to participate in the election. And in an odd year election, that's when this kind of thing gets a little tougher. To yeah, it gets, it gets tricky. Um, but to your point, the, um, Fabrizio, the pollster that did uh, the Republican pollster that did the polling for Bevin, their last public poll showed, um, or I, I don't know if they intended to release it or if a memo just got out, but it was, I think, the Daily Coast elections folks got a hold of a memo from that pollster showing Conway up three. The way they did their research was all on phones. They did 70% landline, 30% cell. It's also unclear if they how they decided who counted as a likely voter, and it's unclear if they called off of the voter file. The most accurate poll, which again, accurate, this is all relative terms here, um, that was by Vox Populi. Um, they conducted their whole poll using IVR. Um, that's, that's their methodology. Uh, and they actually got it closest. They showed that the race would be tied, so still a long way away from Matt Bevin winning by nine, but it was the best of the polls that were out there. Their sample frame was interesting. They surveyed people who were registered voters, so they called based on the voter list, and they called people who had voted in 2012 or 2014 or people who had just registered to vote in Kentucky since the 2014 election, which is smart because if you just call based on vote history, you can miss new registrants who still might show up at the polls. Um, so this is kind of a smart way of doing it. You know, ideally, I think you want to call based on, you know, modeled scores on the file if in a perfect world. But most of your models of, you know, who's going to turn out or not turn out are going to be based on vote history anyways. So this is this is a pretty smart frame for how to do it. Um, it was still off, but it was the best of the polls that we had. Right. I mean, if we were, you know, if if someone asked us to design a sample frame, and let's say it's it for internal purposes, you would start with people who voted in a past odd year election, right? You'd start there. And then I, at least I would then look at ways you might expand the universe just so you're taking into account new registrants and also any kind of growth in the odd year electorate. You know, any, any you know, want, you don't want to miss somebody. You can't add them back in if you don't call them. You can take people out after the fact. So you could then look at people who were our drop-off voters, people who voted in even-year elections, but they don't vote in odd-year elections, and take those people. Of course, asking everybody if they're going to vote in this election, and use some combination of you know uh, landlines and cell phones, 
and and probably ideally, and I know why media folks would do this, stay away from IVR, which is obviously cost effective, but you don't know if you're getting the actual person that you're trying to reach. So if you have a household where one person's registered and one person's not, so one person fits your sample frame, the other one doesn't, it, by VR, it's a little bit harder to get the actual person you want on the phone. You're, you're really just getting whoever responds, and they can punch in whatever they want. I, I'm normally kind of an IVR hater, although it is indisputable that here in this Vox Populi poll, which was IVR, they did get it closest, even though it was still off by nine. And I will say that, so at my firm, Echelon, we don't really do IVR much at all. Um, we do if we need to do modeling surveys. And so one time, um, we were just sort of testing things out and we didn't want to pay a voice actor because we were just experimenting. We were just kind of messing around. So I was the voice actor. So I had to sit in my room and record, hi, is this Allison? Hi, is this Adam? Hi, is this Amanda? Hi, is this Ashley? Oh, my God. Like 500 names, the 500 most common names on the voter file margin. Wow. It was hardcore. Oh, my God. That <laughs> so, is funny. So, uh, you know, that's time I'll never get back. But I was like, man, I'm not getting paid enough. I need to go talk to my boss. <laughs> this is unacceptable. So so let's talk a little bit then about what the Kentucky electorate looks like and what may have made Kentucky a ripe place for some kind of polling weirdness to occur. So bear in mind, Kentucky's a red state, but it's got significantly more Democratic voters than Republican voters. It's one of those places where a lot of people are registered as Democratic, but they they behave like Republicans at the polls. So in the 2014 general election, where, again, you had Mitch McConnell beating Allison Lundergan Grimes by, by a pretty significant margin, at the polls that day, there were 1.4 million ballots cast, and the Democrats had a plus 14 registration advantage among people who voted. 55% of voters were Democrats. But many of them broke for McConnell. In 2012, in the general election, you had 1.8 million ballots cast. Again, 55 percent of those voters were registered Democrats. Um, in the 2011 general election, so the last time we had one of these weird off-year gubernatorial races, 59 percent of the ballots cast were cast by people who were registered as Democrats. Um, so then I took a look at the party breakdown of those three polls that we described. Um, USA Today, they showed Dems plus 14. The Fabrizio poll showed Dems plus 15. I mean, that's what previous electorates in Kentucky have looked like whether you're talking these normal years or these off years. Vox Populi, we don't know what the registration of their sample looked like, but they did ask people, which party do you affiliate with? Which is maybe different than which one are you registered with? Right. And there they only found D plus five, that 46% of their respondents said they affiliated as a Democrat, 41% said they affiliated as a Republican. So D plus five is very different than D plus 15, but the questions are, it's not apples to apples. Affiliation and registration aren't necessarily the same thing. And if, you know, and if you were advising the Conway or Bevan campaigns, your internal stuff would have or should have stuff like, you know, G Republican ID, but not reg, you know, as a demo group to look at, you know, folks who they're registered, but they still ultimately identify, you know, with the Republican Party or there are reg Dems who voted for McConnell based on, you know, you can ask them how they voted. Right. And and you would use that as an important swing subgroup to look at, like, what do they respond to? And how is the size of that group changing or evolving in your sample? It's just a way to kind of monitor what your sample looks like. And this is the stuff when, you know, people release their internal polls. and Everyone's like, well, that's silly. That's an internal poll. I'm sure it's garbage. It, it, it You know, very likely, certainly the high quality pollsters will be doing that kind of analysis internally. And that's the difference, you know, that kind of accountability and looking at that stuff beneath the surface that you don't always get with the 
uh, publicly released press polls. It's not because the press polls are bad. It's just they're trying to achieve different things. Yep. Um, last but not least on this Kentucky thing, what's also fascinating is the way that gubernatorial elections sort of screw up the blue-red divide um, more often than Senate elections do. So Harry Enton over at 538 plotted out um, two charts. He plotted out one chart where he said he put presidential results along the x-axis. So um, did the Democrat win or the Republican win? And then on the y-axis, he put the gubernatorial result. Did the Republican win or did the Democrat win? And he finds that there's a really strong correlation between how a state votes for president and how a state votes for Senate. That in general, if Obama just dominated in the presidential election, then two two years later, the Democrat probably also dominated in the Senate election. Um, You have a few of these little outliers. You know, you have things like Colorado, where you had Democrats win in the presidential, but you had Cory Gardner win um, in the in the gen or in the the midterm for Senate. But then when he plots this out for gubernatorial races, and the plot is the the correlation is not as strong. Things are a little bit all over the place, and you have a lot of states that fall into this weird quadrant where it's a blue state in presidential years. But the gubernatorial results have Republicans winning. And so Kentucky, you know, kind of falls falls into a weird bucket where it's actually one where the Republican wins the presidential year. But you would have thought maybe a Democrat would have won the gubernatorial race. And yet in 2014, we had no examples in that quadrant. Right. None at all. Right. Um, so, you know, I guess the, the question is, is it possible now, even though in so many of these southern states, Democrats actually do have this higher than you might expect registration advantage um, if they're voting red in presidential years, just how possible is it for a Democrat to win even in one of these off-year elections? Right, right. And it's tough. It's tough. And, you know, gubernatorial races are always going to be a little bit different than Senate because you have, you know, you have more chances for a a gubernatorial candidate or a governor to kind of stand apart from Washington. Mm -hmm. They can run against Washington. They can provide, you know, some sort of, there's some local state issue that's really important, whether it's transportation or schools that could be sort of separate from the dialogue that's going on in Washington. So it makes sense that the correlation's a little bit different. So thanks for joining us. We have Neil Newhouse, a partner at Public Opinion Strategies. And I spent a few hours with Neil yesterday on our ongoing uh, research studying Walmart moms. And we've been doing this show for a few months, but we've never actually talked about Walmart moms in a lot of detail, even though, you know, I feel like I've spent a lot of time over the last few years talking about Walmart moms. So, Neil, why don't you tell us uh, all a little bit about the Walmart moms project, what it is, how it started and, and what we did last night? Um, Margie, first of all, thanks for inviting me to be on, on this with you. Um, I love working with you on this project, and it's, it's been a lot of fun. This whole Walmart Moms project started in the 2008 general election when we were trying to figure out who, who might be key swing audiences in the 2008, the run-up to 2008 presidential. And, you know, we literally sat down and kind of like dreamed up some groups. I mean, it was one of these things where we're talking about Facebook independence and evangelical uh, Latinos. And then we talked about Walmart moms. And so we kind of dreamed up these groups as potential you know, swing audiences. And then we kind of did, did this backwards. And then we tested it. And when we tested it, I was really shocked at the number of um, Americans, number of women specifically, who shop at Walmart on a regular basis. I just, I was totally unprepared for it. Turns out it was something like 60% of women in the country had shopped at Walmart in the past uh, month or so, past 30 days. And when you combine that, that percentage of 
kind of people who shop at women who shop at Walmart with then people who have women who have kids under the age of 18 at home, it's anywhere between, at the time it was 14 to 17 percent. I think it may be a little bit lower now, but it's a large chunk of, of Americans. And these women, we found, were very sensitive to the economy, were, um, were not necessarily all that tuned into politics, but they impacted uh, the you know, political campaign. They had a, a disproportionate impact on, on political campaigns because they were late deciders and they were uh, deciding on their, on their pocketbooks. And so we studied them in, in 08 a little bit. And then Walmart got interested in this and uh, contacted me. And then you and I got together to work with Walmart on this. And we've done, gosh, I don't know, I mean, Marjana, how many focus groups we've done now. I mean, uh, we've done dozens of focus groups. We've done about three or four different dial sessions. We've done like, I don't know, fewer, almost 10 surveys, uh, national and statewide surveys over the last, you know, three three cycles. I mean, it's it's been pretty incredible. And what's great about it is we've, you know, it's available to the public. This isn't, you know, an internal project. This is all outward facing. We live stream focus groups to political reporters here in D.C. We were at the press club yesterday. There are local reporters who go on site when we do the focus groups out in the field. Last night we were in Iowa and New Hampshire, but we've been in other battleground states. And it really gives a voice to these moms and has them really be, you know, they're more included in the political process. We really hear their voice in a way that their voice is not always heard since they swing so much. They move, you know, they they have swung back and forth between Democrat and Republican a few times now. And contrary to what I think some folks might think when they think of what a Walmart mom would be like, they are very diverse. They, they diverse in, they're diverse in terms of their race or ethnicity, their income, age. Um, they skew a little bit younger because they're moms, but they are, you know, they're not as, uh, they're not, they don't skew Democrat or Republican or uh, liberal or conservative as much as one might think. Yeah. And they, I think the other, the really cool thing about this is the focus groups and, and, you know, our effort to try to, you know, to try to kind of open up these focus groups to the press and, and to the public. Because the only, the only exposure most Americans have to focus groups is, uh, is watching Frank Luntz on Fox News. You know, and that's not a uh, that's not a you know that's not what focus groups are about. Um, and so, to to have you know Americans behind the glass, and and specifically these press folks behind the glass, is really fun. And I I think they enjoy it, and it gives these moms uh, a voice uh, that's that's really important and that and that needs to be heard. Yeah. And so last night we did it a little bit differently because often we talk to swing moms. Um, but last night we talked to primary voting moms. We talked to Republicans in New Hampshire and we talked to Democrats in Iowa. And, um, you know, I, I think they they echoed a lot of the same findings that you're finding in national polls. But I, I think there were still some interesting, uh, interesting takeaways. I mean, what were your what were your key thoughts from what happened last night? Well, as you and I talked about it last night, what, what really surprised me was the convergence of attitudes between Republicans and Democrats on a number of these different issues um, on the mood of the country and how, how negative these, you know, both groups of Americans work uh, toward the direction of the country. Um, the, the overwhelming concern about the, the cost of living um, kind of spread across both, both groups and then the... <laughs> Both groups saved their 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 toughest comments for um, 
for the Washington dysfunction that they see uh, Congress embroiled in. And it's just the, you know, it, as, as moms, they, they're, they're very, um, they, they, they describe this as like their kids fighting or, you know, kids in a sandbox kind of stuff. Uh, and they just, they, they, they believe that the Washington uh, insiders, the, you know, the Republican Democratic Party here in, in town, they're more interested in fighting each other than they are in, in solving problems across the country. And you saw that across both groups, which I thought was really interesting. There, there, were, there were more convergences between how these Republicans in New Hampshire and Democrats in Des Moines felt uh, than I thought differences. Um, when it came to the differences, I think at this stage, the Republicans seem to be more energized, more tuned in, more turned on by, by this election, more anxious for November to roll around pretty quickly uh, than did Democrats. Generally, we, that's not an unusual finding because generally Democrats, I think, get energized closer to the election. But just as a side, um, I think that may help explain some of the Republican victories last night and just the surge among, especially in, in Kentucky. Um, how well uh, Bevan did there compared to Conway and, and how that was such a dramatic difference from the, uh, the early polling. I think Republicans are, Republicans right now are just are energized and, uh, and have an advantage right now. I, I want to ask then what you think happened in Kentucky, just as a quick aside. I mean, what do you think caused this big difference between the polls, even the polls that were coming out a week before the election, um, showing, you know, at best the race tied and then Bevin winding up winning by nine? Do you think that the polls got, got their sample frame wrong or do you think there was some kind of late swing toward Bevin that the polls just missed? Well, first of all, I mean, don't even get me started on, on some of these media polls, some of these <laughs> university, the university polls and the the bluegrass poll got, I mean, look how poorly the polling performed in Kentucky in, in 2014 and trying to figure out the McConnell and, uh, and Grimes race. This is, you know, 2015 was not an anomaly. I mean, they, these guys didn't do a good job in 14 and they do a good job now. And it's, it has nothing to do with a third party candidate. It has to do with, with you know, polling from voter lists and polling um, in low turnout elections, it's always tougher to figure out who's going to vote in a low turnout election, which this essentially was. And I think the other thing you've got, you've got to give credit, uh, the wind at, at, at Bevin's back was President Obama. Uh, President Obama is not popular in Kentucky. And the more that Republicans run against him in a state like that or in West Virginia or other states, uh, you know, the, the more traction it gives our, gives our candidate. Uh, yeah, I, 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 and, and, just to even go any further, I did the uh, Ohio issue three, which is the ballot initiative in Ohio, um, the anti-marijuana um, monopoly initiative. And there were three university polls that essentially showed this thing tied within the last three weeks of the campaign. Um, and we won by two to one. Yeah. And, and, it's, and, it's not, and, and it wasn't like we we came on late. Hell, we got out spent 20 to one. Um, it's just... Polling is becoming more difficult, and yet, it because of the need for press, because of the need for a kind of publicity, you know, universities and other other institutions decide to get involved in it, and they don't do a very good job of it. Um, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of polling out there, but there's not a lot of good polling out. 
Yeah, they, they, people feel like they got to feed the beast. They got to feed shows like ours. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, exactly. I, maybe we're part of the problem. I saw something, <laughs> I think it was the folks at Huffington Post pollster who tweeted out that in 2000, I can't now remember if it was 2012, I guess it was 2012, they had done, um, you know, however many polls they had tracked, 200 and some odd polls, and they're basically almost at that amount already, as much as the entire 2012 election cycle Gotta in terms of number of polls. Neil, I want to get back to the the Walmart moms for a second. So earlier in our show today, we were talking about the general election matchups. And right now, Quinnipiac has their most recent poll showed um, Carson and Clinton pretty much tied with female voters. And it looks like from the analysis of your groups that, um, you know, there were there were quite a number of women on the Republican side who liked Ben Carson, that there were women on the Democratic side who liked Hillary Clinton, though, you know, maybe had reservations. How did the the women in your groups re- react to both Clinton and Carson? Because Carson's the one where I, I was telling Margie earlier in the show, people constantly ask me, I don't get it. What's his appeal? And yet he's he's always performs very strongly in these polls. Is there anything you heard that can help us shine light on this mystery? Um, I think they, from the groups last night, and, and, and what, you know what surprised me most in the groups last night? wasn't the Republican group talking about Ben Carson. It was the Democratic group talking right. about him. And there are at least two women in that Democratic group who, if they, you know, if pushed, they could potentially support Ben Carson rather than, than Hillary Clinton. And I think it's the, it's the sense that he's not a politician, that he comes from outside, uh, you know, the kind of business as usual, politics as usual. They, they like his, um, they, it, it speaks to his character. They like his pace. They like his his straight talk. Um, there's something real and authentic about him that is not picked up by these other by the by the other political candidates by the by the uh, you know the, the traditional uh, candidates. And I think there's there's something different about the guy. You know what? I asked I asked myself the same question, you know, a couple of months ago in terms of okay, I understand Ben Carson's got a, he's got a strong evangelical pull, but that's that's nine, maybe ten percent in the Republican primary, who are you know diehard you know evangelicals and would vote that way, and, and Ben Carson's sitting in the mid twenties, right? Um, so it you know that just simply doesn't explain it. There's there's a hunger out there right now for someone different, and I and I think I thought about this a little bit after listening to those groups last night. The fuel for his fire um, has come from the failure of Congress to get anything done. Right. The, the, the failure here in Washington for the political establishment to, to work together and solve things. And so um, it's, it's that failure in Congress that has given rise and, and fueled candidacies like Ben Carson's um, because you think, okay, well, you know, what, what makes it, when, when voters ask, like, what, what makes you think that a Ben Carson can get this job done, but that a non-politician can can uh, can fix things? And his easy answer is, well, just look at you know the job the politicians themselves have done. That's not very good. I mean, they've failed. How, you know, can he do worse? 
Right, right. I mean, you know, you had a lot of folks when we talked about this who wanted to feel like they really know the candidate. And, and you had some uh, moms say that they wanted to hear from the spouses, that that was really important to them. And I think Carson kind of fits into that desire to want to be able to really get to know the person and have it be a quote unquote real person who cares about regular people. And that puts him in a complete different category from both Clinton and Bush, who, you know, while they have support from their parties, you know, still didn't have a lot of enthusiasm, at least not what we heard last night. Yeah, and Margie, what those women also said is, hey, I don't really worry about Ben Carson being his president that much because he can hire the, you know, the established politicians or, you know, experienced people around him. Right. Right. Um, so uh, well, let's move on a little bit to talk about um, uh, Jeb Bush. We, uh, the group spoke a little bit about Jeb Bush in the in the Republican group. I know you've done some work um, with some of the uh, some Bush supporters, and, and uh, Kristen is a Florida native, so we talk about Jeb Bush a lot. So, but he hated on the Gators yesterday. Oh no! I, this is he's breaking my heart. He's killing me. I love Jeb Bush, and he is just killing me with his Gator hate. You're a single issue Gator voter. <laughs> I am a single issue voter. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I, I'm curious what, what your take on, on uh, you know, what you can tell us. I, I know, you know, you're you're affiliated with Jeb World. And, um, you know, we, we I think on this show we always caution people to, you know, take things in perspective that a single national poll showing a candidate doing well or not well, you know, may not be terribly relevant at this, even at this late stage in the game, especially when you're talking small subsamples and what have you. Um, but it is it is pretty clear that the last week or two of polling has not been great for Jeb Bush. Um, you know, what did you hear in these focus groups and, and what, what do you think people are missing about the story of, of how voters are thinking about about Bush for president? Um, well, keep in mind, Chris, I mean, I've, I've done work for Jeb um, since I've been involved with Jeb since 1993. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am a little biased, <laughs> uh, to say the least. Um, I love Jeb. I think he is a I my my recall that of the 98 and 02 campaigns um, was the guy who was a great debater and, and was a great campaigner. And yet that, you know, that doesn't seem to have come through yet. Um, I think the, uh, the challenge for Jeb is, is now uh, multifaceted simply because number one, because of his last name, if his last name were, you know, Anderson or, or Merrill or Newhouse, um, I think it'd be different, but his last name being Bush in the sense that, you know, we don't want, you know, the sense among some voters that, you know, they're kind of tired of a dynasty. I think that that causes him to to campaign uphill a little bit. But I think, you know, we still have a long ways to go. And this is, I think January is going to be what we call kind of the moving month, which is when, when when voters really start focusing on the candidates and the candidates start moving in the polls. Um, I think when the when the question becomes, you know, what's really at stake here, and uh, when the when the stakes of the 2016 election are really laid out before voters, I think we'll, we'll find some of these, you know, potentially some of these outsiders begin to, to slip a little bit, and and a guy like Jeb, who has gravitas, who has done an incredible job in Florida, uh, begin to to uh, you know, to rise again in the polls. Um, every campaign, every camp, every successful campaign for uh, for president generally goes through a kind of near death experience. You know, <laughs> we went 
I mean, we went through it in the, in the Romney. And people don't realize how close we were in the Romney campaign to just simply losing it. We can't, I mean, even after uh, South Carolina, we came from behind in five states to, to win uh, primary elections. It, it was touch and go in Michigan, touch and go in Ohio. We had some very tough, difficult moments. We had some near-death experiences there. And I think we're going through some of that right now in the, in the Jeb Bush campaign. But keep in mind, we've got you know 90 days before the voting starts, and then we have five months, five long months of voting. Um, so we have a long ways to go. But uh, this is, I got to tell you, I mean, this isn't as, an excited, as exciting a, um, a preseason you know, election year as I've seen. I mean, this is, you know, everybody talks about odd-numbered years being, you know, the off year. There's nothing off about this year. <laughs> or maybe there's something very <laughs> off Maybe everything is year. off about this but year. It's all off, but, yeah, it's, it's had slowed down. Oh, my gosh. Um, so why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into the biz and, you know, we've worked on this project on Walmart Moms as a bipartisan collaboration. It's been a great bipartisan effort, but, you know, I think our listeners may not all know that lots of pollsters work in bipartisan fashions, and so they I, I think if you could talk a little bit about that and why that's important, even if it doesn't actually happen on the Hill very often, it does happen with consultants. Uh, it, no, it does. I mean, what's really kind of funny is um, my, my, uh, I get along better with my opponents, my opponents being Democratic pollsters than I do my competitors, uh, <laughs> Republican pollsters. Uh, you know, the Republican pollsters are trying to take you know money out of my kids' mouths, and uh, Democratic pollsters are just trying to beat me. So... Um, I grew up in Kansas City. Uh, I'm a Kansas guy. I'm a big Royals fan. So oh, congratulations. So, yeah, that was fun. Um, and I went to Duke University and was not really political before I went to college and then took a couple of courses in poli science, voting behavior. And then a long time ago, in the 1972 presidential election, we had two pollsters come down to Duke to speak, Peter Hart and Pat Cadell. Oh wow! I know, and so what I a went, pair! I know, so I I really I was like, well, this is interesting. So I I kind of in the back of my mind thought that was pretty good. I in, I ended up applying for a job with Peter Hart. Sent a note and got like a form letter back. Um, didn't get that job, but ended up years and a couple of years later as an intern in survey research at the Republican National Committee, and my intern coordinator was Carl Rove. Wow! So That's that you know, great. and so. Ended up working on doing nothing but campaigns, ran a con- congressional campaign in New Jersey, uh, was deputy director of the local elections campaign division at, at uh, RNC. So I literally, in my formative years, I literally worked in probably 47 states across the country doing nothing but state house and state senate and mayor's races and county races all across the country in the 19, from 1977 to 1980. And then I got hired by, uh, by Dick Worthland's firm. Worthland was, was Reagan's pollster. And I got hired by his firm um, going into the, the re-elect in 84 for Reagan and kind of never looked back. I, so I you're, really, you're really like one return call from Peter Hart away from having been a Democratic pollster? <laughs> is, that what you're, is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> my, my, uh, my partisan values weren't all that well anchored when I got to college. Uh, they became anchored later on. But, yeah, that's, that's probably true. And I've kidded Peter about it. Um, but I, uh, I, I can't believe I get paid to do this. This is I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a frustra- I'm an old, frustrated high school athlete, never good enough or big enough to play in college. And so I love the comp. What drives me is the competition. I love the winning and losing. 
I loved last night, the election night, and, and you know, keeping score and, and you know, looking at the ballot issues we won, and it's just it's 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 really fun and uh, th this kind of competition. So um, that's what kind of drives me, and I, I love the fact I get to do this every day. Oh, well, that's great. Well, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow you on Twitter or follow more about your firm, where should they go? Well, Twitter, my Twitter handle is at KCKid. I'm still proud of my Kansas City roots. Our, uh, our firm is Public Opinion Strategies. The, uh, e the uh, web address is pos.org. And my email address is pretty easy. It's neil, N-E-I-L, at pos.org. And I'd be glad to answer anybody's questions or uh, respond to people's uh, comments. Well, maybe you'll respond to somebody who will be the next Neil Newhouse one day. <laughs> or maybe they'll become a Democratic pollster, <laughs> depending uh, on who responds to their email. <laughs> not a problem. Thanks for coming thank, on, Neil. Hey, Mark, thank you for asking me, Kristen. Thanks, and uh, good talking to you guys. Bye. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye. So speaking of Twitter feeds, uh, I launched a Twitter poll of my own last night um, asking people a very important question. It's now November. Is it acceptable or not for me to begin listening to InSync's Christmas album, Home for Christmas? Hmm. Is that acceptable? Uh, Twitter overwhelmingly said no, although I now I will say— I believe that. You believe that? <laughs> I will say this is lessons in poor, poor question construction <laughs> by saying— is it acceptable for me to listen to InSync's Christmas album now that it is November? There are many reasons why one might say no, and my data is not giving me good uh, the ability to tease that out. Right. Are you saying no because it's unacceptable for me to ever listen to InSync? Are you saying no because it's too early? Are you saying no that it's you know there are you only have two options in the Twitter you poll. Only have two options. So I made the best uh, be best of what I could, but methodologically it's a little dicey. Uh, but nonetheless, we'll we'll wrap up the show with uh, a little bit of data about what people think about the concept of Christmas creep. Um, now that Halloween is over, you may notice if you walk into, say, a Starbucks, there will be red cups um, out and available, uh, that if you walk into, say, a Walmart, there's probably going to be Christmas decorations available for you to buy. So what do people think about Christmas creep? Um, so first, I, I think to sort of set the scene, there was a report that came out from Pew earlier this week about religion in America, and it, it asked people questions about, you know, to what extent do they pray daily, believe in God, um, consider religion to be very important in their lives. And there are huge generation gaps on these questions, that on things like attending religious services at least weekly, only 27% of older millennials and 28% of younger millennials say that they go to religious services on a regular basis. Only 38% of younger millennials say religion is important in their lives. But when you ask questions about Christmas, and is it okay for us to begin celebrating Christmas early, or does it annoy you? It's actually millennials who are the most excited to begin the holiday season early on. 59% um, <laughs> of respondents who are in the 18 to 29-year-old age group said that they feel annoyed when holiday items appear early, but that's lower than the 71% overall who say they are annoyed when they see holiday items in stores before. And this is before Halloween, by the way, before Halloween. So we are now, I believe, in a safe period. I guess. We are past Halloween. I know, but there was a time when it was not until after Thanksgiving, but I guess that's just... So my my best friend that Mary, who I think listens to the show, hi Mary, shout out if you're listening. She loves the Thanksgiving blend coffee from Starbucks, and was I think very dismayed because I think last year 
the Christmas blend had replaced the Thanksgiving blend before Thanksgiving. <laughs> and so she's a little she's a little stressed about that. Um, the, the National Retail Federation has done polling for the last, I think, decade and a half where they ask people about their Christmas shopping habits. And 40 percent of shoppers say they've already done some Christmas shopping before Halloween. And I read this and it surprised me. And then I realized I would actually have to say yes to that question as well. Because um, I'm the kind of person where throughout the year, like if I find a really good deal on something that seems like it could be a good gift down the road, I'll buy it. And then I'll just set it aside like, oh, well, when Christmas comes around, I've already got these like fabulous makeup palettes that I found at Sephora that were on sale or whatever it is. And I, I like hoarded them. That's smart. So technically, I have already begun my Christmas shopping, even though I'm a horrible procrastinator. You are, are you are part of Christmas creep, I guess. I am the 40%. <laughs> Hear me roar. I guess it's not a surprise that millennials like Christmas creep while at the same time becoming less religious. I guess they're into the commercial side of it rather than the, well, the I guess, spiritual side. I, I guess, don't know. You know, I mean, not that that's uniquely millennial. I guess the fact that the the Christmas creep is a separate measure altogether from religiosity toward Christmas, presumably being a component of that, is, I guess, not a surprise that those are basically two related but not this, it's not one for one, the correlation between those things. Well, in, in the National Retail Federation poll, when they asked people why they would begin their shopping early, um, most people said that it was kind of for financial reasons to spread out their budget so that, you know, you weren't just hit with this wave of, oh, my gosh, you got to buy all this stuff um, in one month of the year. And Gallup has asked people um, how much they estimate that they will spend on Christmas gifts this year. Um, there was a big fall off during the financial crisis, no surprise. Um, the peak was in 2007, um, people saying that they would spend on average $909 on Christmas gifts. Um, this question is, by the way, asked in October of each year. Um, that fell off pretty sharply. And around the time you hit um, 2011, it was at its uh, you know $712. It fallen off about $200 per respondent. It's now creeping back up. We're up to $812 um, is the average that someone thinks they will spend on Christmas. That's That seems like a lot. I mean, I guess it depends on how many people you buy presents for, but that's really quite a bit. And, you know, this chart, if you go to Gallup and look at it, it looks like there's a lot of dramatic swing. It, it's Part of it is just how the, the axis, you know, what scale it's on on the y-axis. But still, nonetheless, it did drop, and now it's clearly on the rebound. Um, where, you know, you have about a third of people saying they're going to spend over a grand on Christmas presents. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. So um, I'm in favor of the drawings, of the, you know, making things, of the, you know, experiences rather than things, um, all of that. Oh, experiences rather than things. That's very millennial of you, Margie. Oh, well, you know, occasionally, occasionally, (laughs) once in a while, I have a millennial point of view. The rest of the time... Um, you know, a mom in the suburb. So the key findings. So what we learned this week, Clinton, Carson, and Rubio, and even Christie have surged while Bush and the moderators, probably the losers of last week's CNBC debate. But in the general, Carson is the strongest. Meanwhile, Walmart moms across party lines feel few candidates are paying attention to their own shared struggles. What's the matter with polling in Kentucky? Neil Newhouse had his own uh, blunt take, and Christmas polling comes earlier every year, even while religiosity declines. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters or individually at, at Margie O'Meara and at Soltis Anderson. You can find us at thepolsters.com or on Facebook, where throughout the week we'll post findings from polls and news stories that seem interesting to our viewers. Thanks, and see you next week.
When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip-hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.